Good morning. Glad you guys are here today. I'm braving the frigid weather of Florida, I don't know, 40 degrees, and everybody wants things to shut down. Uh, I love it. It's great. It's a great time of the year. It's great football season. I don't know if you heard. There's a little game going on next week. Maybe some of you have heard of it. They play it once a year. Super Bowl. Little game. There's a guy who plays in it. His name's Tom Brady. You know Tom Brady, right? Of course. You know Tom Brady. You know Tom Brady? What do you guys talk about? What are his kids like? What did you have for dinner last time? His handshake. When you shake his hand, is it, does he grip real hard? Does he do one of those half-hand, half-hug things? What does he do? Well, because you know Tom Brady, right? What would happen if you showed up at his door after the Super Bowl? Said, Tom, Tom, I'm your biggest fan. Or your jersey. You're, you're on my fantasy team. Well, he would say, get out of here. I don't know you. Probably call the cops. But do you really know him or you just know about him? We talked about this on Wednesday. It's so important knowing who God is and knowing that we are able to know him intimately. But there's a difference between knowing something intimately, knowing someone on a personal level and just knowing about them. There's a lot of things we know about. There's a lot of people we know about. But do we know them intimately? Hopefully we'll see this morning that it is possible to know something in your mind, but yet not truly believe it. Not truly have it have transformed your heart enough to know it intimately. Many people know about Jesus and can quote scripture and they go to church and they go through the motions, but they don't know the one who they're talking about. They don't know the one who they're singing about. They don't know the, the reason why they're gathering. I want us to see in our text this morning that Jesus is building on what we've looked at the past couple weeks. And he's actually clarifying what uh, Justin was talking about last week. So if you open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7. Our text this morning is verse 21 through 23. But we're actually going to start reading in verse 13 uh, because it's, it's helpful to get this into context. Uh, and they didn't know I was going to do this, so it's not up on the screen. But you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to start at verse 13. And one of the things that I always talk about whenever I'm leading a Bible study or helping someone understand a passage is the chapter, verse, and section designations in your Bible are helpful tools, but sometimes they inhibit us from understanding Scripture. Now, there are different sections in your, your Bible, but this is one continuous thought, and I want you to see how Jesus unveils this here. So we're going to start reading in 713 all the way through 23. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So... Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your kingdom is an amazing thing that we cannot comprehend. That you brought heaven down to earth in the form of your Son, and your eternal rule and reign is secured in Him. That we might be called your sons and enter into your kingdom as heirs is beyond our comprehension. But while we're on this earth, you want us to be wise and to discern the voices and the influences that we have in our lives. You want us to do works in your name Because we are part of your kingdom, not because we need to earn entrance into your kingdom. And that most importantly, this morning, we will see that it is that we know Jesus intimately. That we know him as our personal savior. Not just that we know facts and things about him. Not that we can rattle off Bible verses. But that we know him. Pray that this morning, that this passage would help bring clarity to who we are, bring, bring clarity uh, to why our ministry in the, in, the, in the church is important. And it would bring comfort because of whose we are and where our names are written. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's a little different, right, when you read this passage without taking a pause for those, for those sections. Jesus is building on one after another. So in verse 13 and 14, uh, this is the reality, that there is only two ways. There's no third option. There's no phoning in a friend. It's either the narrow gate or the wide gate. The next section, 15 to 20, it's a recognition on how to spot those who are in the wide gate, going on the wide way. You can spot them by their fruits. You can recognize them by the way that they walk. In our text this morning, here's the result. If you stick with the wide way, you can even call Jesus' name, but he doesn't know you. So we see the reality in 13 to 14, the recognition in 15 to 20, and this morning, the result. So Jesus is now clarifying the fruit that we studied last week. What type of fruit are they bearing? Because obviously the people in our text this morning... These, these, these prophets, these healers, were bearing some kind of fruit. It was not the fruit that led to righteousness. And it begins in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, Lord. This is a, a repetition. Anytime repetition is in, is in Scripture, it's for us to pay attention. You could even say my name twice as if, you really have convinced yourself that you believe it. But not everyone who does will enter the kingdom of heaven. And many people assume that all they have to do is say the name of Jesus. I mean, you've heard this, right? What makes you a Christian? Well, Jesus. 
It's not much beyond that. It's, it, it's kind of one dimensional as if Jesus is a genie. I can call on him when I need him. He's here whenever I'm praying. I'm kind of angry at him when he doesn't answer my prayers. But just if I say his name, he shows up. And that works for, um, you know, for Beetlejuice and Candyman, but it doesn't really work for Jesus. It's not just a genie that you need to call on. And some of you who remember those movies will we'll get the references. Other you guys can look them up later. So I had a friend who was a natural salesman. Uh, the truth be told, natural salesmen, they're, they're kind of, they gravitate toward me. I've had plenty of those guys who just always selling, you know, anyone like that. This, this friend, he could talk to anyone, anytime, anywhere. He could sell anything and he believed it. He would take any sales job because it didn't matter what it was. He would convince people of his product or his service. And pretty soon, he'd have them eating out of the palm of his hand. Hook, line, and sinker, whatever he was selling, he began to live it. He would learn that product so much that it became second nature. And pretty soon, he believed his own sales pitch. He might not even agree with the product. He had jobs at um, uh, retail, car sales, timeshare. Last time I talked to him, he was selling funeral packages. He could sell anything, seriously. Know anyone like that? Know anyone who gets so into what they're doing that they don't even, they don't even know it, but they, they, they believe it. It becomes part of them. And sadly, and even scary, is that many people in the church and many people in the pulpit are the same way. They've repeated the same thing over and over and over again that they believe their own sales pitch. And this has always been an issue in the church. I've talked about the past few weeks, uh, the document, the Didache. It's uh, one of the earliest documents that the early church has. Uh, it was written before most of the books of the New Testament. And one of the concerns that they have is false prophets. And those who are teaching for worldly gain. And those who are drawing people astray from a gospel that is not of Jesus Christ. This is not something new. And it's not something rare. It happens quite often. And we see this so much that in uh, Matthew 23, we're not going to turn there, but if you want to look at the first couple verses in Matthew 23, Jesus is telling the people to listen to the teachings of the Pharisees because they teach the law of Moses, but don't do what they do. Because even if the teachers are false, the teachings are true. These Pharisees knew the law of Moses, but they did not practice what they preached. And sadly, there are so many pulpits in our nation, in our city, where men do not know the Lord. I have good friends in the ministry, been in the ministry for years, and they said it's sad that I can't, they can't count how many pastors they've met who don't know the Lord. So how does that even happen? You sit down in a table with someone long enough, you start to see what their motivation is for ministry, you start to see how they describe who Christ is, it's clear they don't know him. Some of you may be shocked, like, how could this happen? It happens. Justin talked about it last week. Jesus told us that there are wolves in sheep's clothing that look like sheep. I want to read a letter. It's not a letter that I have. It was a letter written to John MacArthur, and he shared it on his radio show, and hopefully he uh, allows me to read it. It's not like he's ever going to hear it, but um, I want to read it anyway because he included the entire letter and the man's name, first name only. But this is very, very telling, and this is exactly what we're getting at today. So listen to this, this letter. 
Uh, and John MacArthur's ministry is called Grace to You. Dear Grace to You, over many years I've been blessed to receive free tapes, CDs, and books from your ministry. Thank you. At those times, I really appreciated them. Now, I no longer believe in the God of the Bible or in Jesus Christ. Ten years of full-time ministry proved to me that there is no God and that the God of the Bible does not care. I now reject Christianity and have come to peace. What was at first a great loss has now turned into joy, peace, and freedom. I did not leave the faith because of some extreme sin. I left because the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are all a fantasy. I'm happy now, and I live in the real world. I only feel guilt about the many people who I led to Christ and exposed them to the lies of Christianity. I'm not mad at Christians, not even mad at you. However, I am mad at myself for not being a more critical thinker. I won't make this mistake again. Again, thank you for the many years of help and teaching that you have shared with me. I do appreciate what you are all trying to do and with the knowledge that you have. But please remove me from your mailing list. Save the money. Don't waste it on an apostate like me. I was just giving your CDs away. But now my conscience can no longer tolerate the further spread of a false hope and disappointment. Sincerely, Steve, the agnostic. Wow. He even self-diagnosed himself properly. Steve, the agnostic. Ten years of ministry led people to Christ. Now says that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are a fantasy. We think that this is some obscure passage that that doesn't happen around us, but it does. And it happens more often than you think. It happens all the time. And it's sad and it's scary and it's a lesson for the body. We need discernment. We need to be rooted in God's word and we need to hold our teachers and leaders to a higher standard. And this is why um, George Whitfield one of the, the greatest evangelists of all time would go, would, would preach in open air and thousands of people would come to hear him speak. The one phrase he said over and over and over and over again was, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. The evangelists in those days would talk about the biggest epidemic in our early nation was pastors unregenerate pastors in the pulpit. When Whitfield was preached, he was preached to the ordinary person, but he was making sure that the pastors heard him as well. You must be born again. He had this famous quote when thousands of people would hear him and he'd give this call for repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. People would ask him the next day, how many people were converted last night? How many people came to faith? He would wisely say, ask me in six months. Because he knew it wasn't about this, this remote emotional response and just some outward call. It was about a true transformation of the heart. So this is a warning to us. This first verse, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, we must be careful of the empty confession. We must be careful of the simple confession. Because a lot of us have been in churches or grew up in churches where the only requirement for becoming a Christian was to pray a prayer. And then we celebrated and then we left them right where they were and never talked to them about it again. 
But that's why discipleship is so important. That's why community is so important. That's why it is so important to have people involved in your life, lives who know what's going on. That's why it's important to know what is going on in the person sitting next to you. We need to ask these tough questions. Many of us, a couple weeks ago when we shared our testimonies, I being one of them, said we prayed a sinner's prayer more times than we could count. You get caught up in the emotion of the service and you say this this sinner's prayer and that's it, right? I'm good to go. We realized that wasn't the case. For most of us, it was years before we could truly surrender our hearts to Christ. So we must be careful of words without a transformation of the heart. Because then we need to ask ourselves, if we just made this outward declaration, is it true faith or was it faith in faith itself? Was it just faith in this, if I believe this and want this enough, it will be true? Or is it faith in, in Christ and his sufficiency for our salvation? When you ask ourselves that and ask those who profess to be Christians, do I have faith in Christ or is it faith in my own admission? If I believed my own sales pitch, am I just going through the motions so much that I don't know Christ and I've never really thought about it? I only know about him. This is a problem in the church. It's why a lot of people are falling away from the faith. This is why a lot of churches who do not invest in people and do not invest in discipleship are dying. Because they realize, I don't know this Jesus. I've just been going through the motions. I know about him, but it means nothing to me and to my life. So I might as well go do something else. Like Luther said, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. Because it's not just the outward profession alone. You must confess with your mouth. Most importantly, believe with your heart. In order to be saved. Turn to Romans chapter 10 with me. I'm paraphrasing Paul. But this is exactly what he says here. Paul is so careful in his words. In Romans chapter 10. We're going to read verses 8 through 10. Romans 10 verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That and is so important. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is, in case you didn't get it the first time, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It must be transformation of the heart first. It must be a heart that is turned from stone into flesh. You must be born again and believe in your heart before you can make that confession. Because a confession without belief is empty. Jesus is going to tell us in a few verses exactly where those people are headed. Because first of all, what Paul tells us in this This passage is the gospel I've already been teaching you. You have to understand that without Christ and without God raising him from the dead, there is no salvation. If you don't believe that on your heart, then there is no salvation. And if we don't share in his death and his resurrection by repenting of our sins and dying to the world and being united with Christ as the desire of our heart, then it's just empty words. 
It's a tough thing to hear in our culture. We'll dissect every word that we say, but really does not care much for the condition of the heart. You must be born again. We must not just call to him as, as Lord, but fall on our knees before him, forsaking the world to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. This is the repentance we want to see in our lives and in those we share the gospel with. And this is the standard we need that we as leaders need to be held accountable to. That we fall on our knees before the Lord and not resting on our own strength and in our own words and our own abilities. Because salvation requires being in the will of the Father under the authority of the Son. It's not just this empty, empty proclamation Jesus tells us. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus told his disciples this several times. Who are my mother and my brother and my sister? It's the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Those who keeps his commandments. Those who love one another because they love the Lord first. You know, there's this, this old question. It's not theologically accurate, uh, but it helps us transition in, in these verses. What happens when you get to heaven's gate? God says, well, how do I let you into my kingdom? There's a lot of errors there, but we've all heard this. Um, What are you to tell him? The people in these verses are saying, look what I did. Lord, Lord. The correct response is not I did this in your name or I proclaim this. It was Jesus did. Jesus proclaimed. Jesus is the only reason I can stand before you right now. So we're going to see this next level of error because verse 21 talks about words, empty words and proclamations. Verse 22 talks about works. Verse 22 says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? Wow. The name of Jesus, they're casting out demons. Doing mighty works. But in a sense, you're coming before Jesus, the creator of the universe, the one who rose Lazarus from the dead, rose himself from the dead, took on all the penalties for sin and saying, look at my resume. Look at me. Look at all the amazing things I've done. Aren't they enough to earn salvation? It's a word for this. Hubris, arrogance, pride. Look at everything I've done. And I even did it in your name. We see that in Acts, was it 19, the sons of Sceva, who uh, they were exorcists. They were Jewish exorcists. They were casting out demons. They're like, oh, we want to do it in Jesus' name now. Then they got possessed themselves and died. It's a great story. One of my favorite lines in all of Scripture is, Jesus we know, Paul we recognize, but kind of who the are you, you know? I, I, I love that. I think there's, there's probably another word in there because it was a demon. He probably cursed there, but we, we, we edited it out. Um, but that's the sense of I want to do things for my own power. And if it takes saying Jesus' name to do it, that's what I want to do. How often are people so proud of themselves? How many people have you talked to and they say, oh, I'm getting into heaven? all the things I've done. If I can't get into heaven, no one can. How often are we that proud of ourselves? Look how smart I am. Look how kind I am. I gave to this person. Didn't even tell anybody. 
Look at me, I'm great, patting ourselves on the back. Jesus is proud of me. Guilty every day, pretty much. How often do we rest in our own strength and our own accomplishments? Is Jesus more concerned with our accomplishments or our character? What we've done or the condition of our heart? But Jesus, didn't Jesus just talk about, in the last section, about by your fruits, you shall, you shall know them. These are fruits. These are good fruits. These are preaching and healing and, and prophesying. Prophesying is kind of uh, speaking godly wisdom to someone. Aren't those fruits? Sometimes we can tend to overthink things. But one of the first verses we memorize as a kid, what are the fruits of the Spirit? True fruit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness and self-control. Carson's smiling. He probably knows this one. Those are real fruits, not just wonders and works, but does our joy and our peace come from Christ? Do we love one another because he loved us? Are we patient and kind because of the work that has been done in us first? Are we just resting on the fruits of our labors? Many pastors, many people in ministry done this and it's 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 quite common actually is it used to be a good career choice to be a pastor if you were in a mainline denomination if you were in a big church this was job security for life go there say some words encourage people do a couple funeral services and my family's set with a pension yeah not so much anymore now it's a little different because this is really coming home to roost right now so now Christianity's big business. If you can, if you can heal, if you can prophesy, if you can put on miracle services, you can have a big house. You can have plenty of cars, and you can promise that to everyone else too. These people make me sick. It should make you sick too. And if your friends are listening to them or being taught by people who are promising earthly wealth for themselves or or for others. And are resting on the wondrous works that they've done. You need to warn them. Because Jesus is warning us. There are false prophets. Beware of these. Like Justin mentioned last week. The devil sows the weeds among the wheat. And they grow up together. The parable of the sower explains this to us. That it really isn't until they start to sprout up. That you know whether it's true growth or not. So someone can actually grow. And the tree can start to bear fruit like Jesus told us. And you don't know until it's ripe if it's rotten or not. So it takes discernment. It takes judgment over time. It takes us being wise throughout the entire process. Justin also uh, talked about Matthew 24, where there will be false prophets who do signs and wonders and lead people astray so far that they would even try to lead, lead away the elect of God. So compelling that believers are like, man, I don't know, he's kind of good. We've all done that, right? As young Christians, we assume that everything in the Christian bookstore is equal. Anything on Christian radio and TV, I'm going to listen to this. And then as you, as you become wise and you get a little discernment, you realize, wait a second, that's not in Scripture. This guy's really high on himself. This guy's really high. I don't know. Um, but we have to have discernment. We have to look 
to the inward condition, not the outside works. We must test every spirit. We must be able to discern between good fruit and bad fruit. You know, it's amazing that the devil is so masterful that he can use people to perform miracles. I mean, Judas is a perfect example of this. When Jesus sent out the disciples, doesn't say that everyone performed miracles but Judas. Judas may have been there. He may have performed miracles. It was not under the strength of Christ. It's under the strength of his father. The devil is good who lead many astray. But our God is more amazing. Our God uses the unregenerate, the dead, the wicked for the sake of his people. King Cyrus, the Persian king, we see that God had a purpose for him in bringing his people out of exile. We see Caiaphas, the chief priest who prophesied truthfully that one man would have to die for the sake of an entire nation. He wanted to put Jesus to death to keep his power, but his Prophecy, John tells us, was for the sake of all who would come to trust and know in him. You can even use a guy like Steve, the agnostic, brought people to Christ. Our God is so amazing and the word of God is so living and active that even dead people can be used to bring his people to life. That is amazing that our God uses dead things to bring his people to life in someone like Steve. But those like Steve who do these works and lead people to Christ and are walking, believing their own sales pitch, the epitome of hypocrisy. Jesus tells us what will happen to them in verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow, this is Jesus meek and mild, right? Nice um, Christian store greeting card quotes here. I should start a whole line of those of Jesus sayings that you didn't think he said or didn't think he should say. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He says three very powerful statements here. First thing, I will declare. This is someone speaking from authority. This is the Lord himself speaking from a place of authority. This is the king and the judge himself saying, I will declare. They just told him, we did this in your name. He says, no, I will declare. I determine. I am Lord. I am king. I determine who receives mercy. And all the pleading and all the words and all the works and all the world can't help you. Because it's not the basic, it's not the basis for our salvation, these words and these works. So do we know the Savior? Do we just know about him or in doing in, in like the sons of Sceva, repeating what the disciples were doing, mimicking other people's words to do good things, or do we know the Savior? Do the teachers who stand in pulpits and with TV shows and popular books, do they know the Savior or do they just know enough about him to make a buck? Second thing he says, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Again, it's interesting here. They say three times, we did this in your name, your name, your name. Jesus says, I will declare, and I never knew you. He'll go on to say, depart from me. 
They say three times we did this in your name. Jesus three times says in his name, I will declare. I never knew you. This is so important. I want you to get this. These are not about people who were truly Christians and lost their salvation. Jesus gives us this picture. I never knew you. You looked like a Christian. You walked like a duck, but you're not a duck. You're a skunk. You're dead. You stink. I never knew you. Someone he never knew is the epitome of a hypocrite. They've been wearing a mask. We've talked about that, that, that Greek word that described actors who play something that they were not. They wanted you to believe that they were something that they were not. Those are tough words from our Savior. Because all the works and all the words are not enough to save you without Christ. Imagine standing before the Savior himself and saying, look what I did. Look what I did in your name. Look what I did for you. You owe me. Jesus probably just kind of laughs him off a little bit. So he says, I will declare, I never knew you. And then he tells him, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So not only does he not commend them for their good deeds. It's like, oh, I know you did some good things, but you don't know me, so leave. No, he told them their good deeds. They exercised demons. They were works of lawlessness. Depart from me. I never knew you. As Isaiah tells us, good works, good deeds, apart from Christ, are filthy rags. Workers of lawlessness. If you're not working out of the kingdom, you're working against the kingdom. You must be born again. You must be born again. It is more important than any work, any declaration you could ever make. Because it's our heart that condemns us. That is deceitfully wicked above all else, as Jeremiah tells us. We must be born again with a new heart and a new life. We must be crucified with Christ. We must die with him like he died for our sins. We must be raised again from the dead, from our sins, to walk in new life with him. Nothing else matters. I want to close us with this verse here. Turn to Luke chapter 10 with me. What better example do we use to interpret the words of Jesus than the words of Jesus? Luke chapter 10, I want to read 17 through 20. Just side note, one of my favorite sounds in a quiet church is the flipping of Bible pages. It's great. So even if you're using your phone, just flip some pages for me. I like hearing it. So if you remember earlier on in Luke, Jesus sends out 72 disciples two by two to do miracles, to proclaim the gospel. And they come back and they do miracles. Listen to how Jesus responds to them. Luke 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, listen so closely here. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
Do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. When we sing earlier, rejoice, that's what we rejoice in. We don't rejoice in the wonderful sentences that we can string together. We don't rejoice in the people that we bring to Christ. We don't rejoice in the things that, that, that we've done. Yes, there is joy in those things. But our ultimate re- source of rejoicing is that our names are written in the book of life for the foundation of the earth. Our Father loves us so much to send His Son. He loves us so much that He brings us unworthy into His kingdom, rejoicing. So how do we conclude this morning? This is a great reminder for us. The last few weeks, we've had this theme of self-examination and discernment, recognizing true and the false, recognizing the sin in our own lives, recognizing the narrow way from the wide way, recognizing the good fruit from the false fruit. This is a warning and a concern for us as believers. Careful of the fruit that you're producing. Careful of your motivation for that fruit. Are you desiring the things of God and desiring to build up his kingdom? Are you desiring people to look at you as how great you are? Because we're all guilty of that. It's important for others. Because in the weeks and months to come, we're going to talk about what it looks like to share the gospel, what it looks like to bring other people into the church and into our family. And we will do that. And God will grow the church by our witness and by our words. And how do we raise those people up that they're discerning and that they're examining themselves, that they're not working for their own pride? We must be diligent in our discipleship. This is also a warning for the leaders, the teachers, a heavy warning. Because I've met guys who are so full of themselves and can't wait to get up and string together a beautiful sentence again so everyone can think how clever they are. But I love what John Piper says. He says that it is not possible for people to think that you are clever and for God to be glorified in the same time. So remember this entire Sermon on the Mount, which we're about to wrap up, is based on Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are the outflowings of grace in someone's life. Not amazing works or words. Are the teachers of the gospel? Are they poor in spirit? Do they mourn for their own sin? Do they hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are they persecuted for the cross of Christ? Are they seeking to be loved by everyone and to build their kingdom here on earth? So questions we need to ask ourselves and ask of our teachers and be able to discern. Because are the teachers of the gospel, are they just heaping up fame and attention for themselves and their own strength? Are they glorifying Christ because they are so broken at their own sin that they have no other purpose? But I love what Vody Bakum says. He says, I'm just one beggar trying to find trying to tell other beggars where to find bread. That is our posture when we proclaim the gospel. Because those who are working for the kingdom, I want you to hear me on this, working for, 
working trying to get into the kingdom. They're working for their place in the kingdom. He will say, I never knew you. But those who are working out of the kingdom, those who are working because they are a part of Christ's kingdom, they are already in. They are proclaiming because of their citizenship, not in order to earn their citizenship. He tells them, well done, good and faithful servant, and welcomes them home. Let us be wise in our discernment, and let's pray. Lord, I love going through your word because some weeks we are encouraged, some weeks we are challenged, some weeks we are stretched because it is so easy to walk through our lives in a haze and assume everything is okay and just accept everything that we're given. But you tell us to be wise, wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. You tell us to discern every spirit. You tell us to beware of false teachers. And Lord, we want to be people who are true to your word. We want to be people who fear you so much that we wouldn't dare differ from the gospel that saved us. We want to be people who love you so much that we're able to share this gospel with others, that we are able to spot out this bad fruit, these false teachers. That our proclamation in the name of Jesus Christ is because our hearts know you intimately. Lord, we want to know you intimately. We want to wake up in the morning and just bask in your love and in your beauty. We want to go to sleep at night just humbled by your work in our lives and what you're doing in our body. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your spirit that teaches and guides and convicts and shapes us into your image so that we can glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.